again, everyone. Privilege to be here this morning to share God's word with you. That last song gets me too. Thinking about the uh, passage that we're going to look at today, Romans 12, 1 and 2, it actually flashed on the screen in the, in the song before that. Just reminded of that verse, the last verse in that song, uh, the wonderful cross about we're the whole realm of nature mine. We're the whole realm of nature mine. That were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine. He man's my soul, my life, my all. That's what we're talking about today. We're talking about our lives. We're talking about what we do in response to the gospel. What we do in response to the fact that God has saved us. We're looking at this passage today that I hope is familiar to you. It's one that has meant much to me, but after walking through Romans the way we have over the last 80 weeks, right? Chris reminded us last week, it's been 80 weeks that we've been studying the book of Romans together, looking at it closely, developing this deep understanding of the gospel as a whole. It's come to mean a lot more today as I've studied this past this text over the past couple of weeks, and I pray that it does the same for you. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn into Romans chapter 12. We're going to look today at verses 1 and 2. If you don't have a Bible today, there might be a little blue one in the pew rack in front of you. Consider that our gift. If you don't have a Bible of your own, use that today. Take it home. Use it. Study it. Read it. Love it. It's, it's good. Last week, Chris preached the final part of chapter 11, which is Paul's response of praise. Right? We talked about how all of this theology, right, all of this gospel, all of the things that he has talked about for the first 11 chapters of Romans leads him to this this outburst of praise. Uh, we talked about how that sh the gospel should do the same for us, that when we have right theology, when we think rightly about what God's word says, we should praise God for this truth. <clears throat> we should praise God for the gospel, which is what the book of Romans is all about. <clears throat> it's God's letter to his people about his glorious salvation for us. And what we're looking at today is this, this, this passage that kind of serves as a pivot point. It's all theology and all doctrine and all truth up to this point. And then there's this, this section of praise at the end of chapter 11. And now what he's going to do is he's going to transition to all practical stuff, right? Holiness, uh, obedience, what we should do in response to all of these things that we've learned so far. Chris talked last week about how right theology should lead to doxology, right? What we see, what that means is how we think about the truth should lead to worship. And praise. And what we're going to see this week is that Paul takes it a step further. Right? So theology leads to doxology. Right? Right thinking leads to praise. But that also leads, there's another step to that, which is holiness. In other words, when we understand right things about who God is, it should lead us to worship and praise him, which in turn should affect how we live. That's the pattern we see in Romans. That's what Paul begins today in the first couple verses of chapter 12. What we think leading to how we live. So if you're in Romans with me, chapter 12, let's read verses 1 and 2 together. God's word says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray together. God, we do want to worship you today and give you praise today. And 
thank you today for the gospel, for the truth that we're sinners, that we deserve your wrath and your condemnation and your punishment for all eternity. But because you are rich in mercy, because of the great love with which you've loved us, you have saved us. Not because of our righteousness, not because of our own merit, but because of you. Because you are a father who loves us. We know that this only happens by your grace, through faith in Christ. So I pray today that, number one, we would understand your word. And we would respond rightly to your mercy, to your grace, to your love and obedience. But I also pray today, Lord, for those that are here that know nothing of your mercy, that know nothing of your grace and your love. God, I pray today that your spirit would open their eyes to that truth. Open their eyes to the glorious truth of the gospel, Lord, that, that men and women, boys and girls, can be saved only by your grace. That your love is so amazing and so great, and it demands our lives. It demands our all. I pray that we get that truth today. God, we love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to walk through this, basically a phrase at a time. Um, so the first thing that he says, verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The, the ESV that I use doesn't use the word therefore first, but that's the first word I want to talk about, because in a lot of translations, that's the first word. And it, it may be the first word in your translation, but I want you to know, and we've talked about this from the pulpit many times, that when you see that word in Scripture, you're supposed to ask yourself what? What's it there for? Right, it's what's it there for? It's a transition word, right? It connects everything that's been said before to everything that's coming next. So when we see that word, therefore, we want, we want to make sure we understand what transition is happening. And we have to understand the context of this passage, right? It's, it, it's, it's Paul is going to spend the next, basically the rest of this letter, giving these exhortations to live in holiness because of everything he's talked about before, right? It's not out of the blue. It's not just some random list of things that we have to do just because, right? He has set up his argument for holy living through the first 11 chapters of Romans. So now when he talks about therefore, there's a response to that, right? There's something required. There's something to come. And that's what we're going to begin today. Paul has made crystal clear that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So when he uses the word therefore, we are reminded of everything he's written up to this point, right? 80 weeks worth of sermons worth, you know, of, of truth. But he says, therefore, he says, I appeal to you, therefore. So I, I appeal to you. Your translation may say, I urge you, right? There is a strong urgency in his tone here, right? This is, this is important to him. He's not taking this lightly. I urge you. If you're urging someone to do something today, it's not just, well, if you feel like it. It's not the tone here. The tone is more direct, more, more urgency, right? I appeal to you. I want you to do this. I want you to understand this. And then he calls them brothers, right? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. And I think this is highly significant. Um, and, and Paul talks like this in, in a lot of his letters. He, he uses the word brothers. He uses the word brethren a lot. Um, but I think this is really significant in this particular passage because of what he's been talking about in, in chapter 11, right? If you remember, if you've been here, we've been studying through Romans. And in chapter 11, there's a lot of talk about Jews and Gentiles, right? 
talks about these, these grafted branches of the Gentiles, right, that they're, uh, they weren't part of the, God's people originally, but God has grafted them in. Uh, talk about Israel and, and all of this, and basically talks about Israel's unbelief opening the door to the Gentiles to be brought in, right, to be grafted in all by God's grace and mercy. Chris talked a lot about this process of grafting a, a branch onto a tree. And so you see all that in chapter 11, all this talk of Jews and Gentiles, all this separation. But I think this is significant because here he just calls them brothers. He just, just calls them brothers. He doesn't say, now you Jewish brothers and you Gentile brothers, that talk is done. He just calls them brothers. He addresses everyone the same. And this is how it should be, right? This is how it should be. We talk much about the fact that there is no room, absolutely no room for racism in the heart of a believer. And so Paul is addressing this diverse group of believers in Rome, but he calls them all brothers. And I think that's really significant. And I, wanted, I just wanted to remind us of that. I wanted to, to touch on that again because of all the talk we had in the last few weeks about Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians and all this talk that now they're just, he just addresses them as brothers. Does that make sense so far? So the next phrase, though, is key to the entire passage. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Right? By the mercies of God. This is the motivation for everything we should do. This is the motivation for holy living. This is the reason we're here today. Right? God has not struck us dead because of our sin. He is merciful. Are you thankful for that today? That the moment you sinned, the first time you sinned, when you were a little guy or gal, you weren't struck dead right then? God was merciful. I was patient. God, has, God allowed you to, to grow up and hear the gospel and save you because he's merciful. This is the motivation. John Stott, great old dead theologian, says there is no greater incentive to holy living than a contemplation of the mercies of God. No greater incentive, he says, to holy living than the mercies, a contemplation of the mercies of God. Do you contemplate the mercies of God in your life? Have you thought about God's grace? Do you think about and you, do you just cherish God's grace and mercy in your own life? I hope so. Another scholar, R. Kent Hughes, says, the greater our comprehension of what God has done for us, the greater our commitment should be. Practically applied, Christ's gift, meditated on, accepted, taken to heart, is a magnet drawing us to deepest commitment to him. Do you see God's grace like that in your life? Do you see it as a magnet? A magnet? drawing you closer and closer to himself. I think the more we contemplate, the more we think on, the more we, we understand God's mercy and grace in our life, the closer it draws us to himself. The closer it, it, it we, the more we want to be in fellowship with him, the more we want to obey him, the more we want to grow in him. And God's mercy is the basis for how we live our lives. You know the definition of mercy, right? Mercy is, not, it, it is God withholding from us what we deserve. God withholding from us wrath and punishment. We deserve death. We deserve to be cast off because we are sinners. And God is holy and righteous and just. But grace is the other side of the same coin. Right? Grace is us getting us what we do not deserve. We do not deserve forgiveness. We do not deserve God's love. We do not deserve eternal life. But God is merciful and gracious. If you're here today, you are in Christ, you've repented of your sin, you are trusting in Jesus. This is your motivation for holy living. I think a lot of people
people in church today are motivated to serve God by the wrong things. The author Tim Keller talks about fear as being one of the things that wrong motivate Christians to obedience. He says that fear is our motivator. If fear is our motivator, we're going to see certain things. Number one, he says, our motivation will lose its power over time. We will no longer be motivated at a certain point because we get tired. We, to, we get too tired to care. We become indifferent to what's going to happen if, if fear is our motivator. If we're motivated to serve God because we're afraid. If we're, if fear ba- if we're number two, fear-based obedience has trouble with repentance, right? That we tend to think that there's a line, that if we sin too much, if we cross that line, that God's going to condemn us. The problem with that is that we don't, we don't know where the line is, right? That results in, in a fear of reprisal from God. Right, which leads to a lot of rationalizing, blaming others. We don't truly repent if we are basing our obedience on fear. And the last thing he says is fear-based suffering will always make it difficult. Fear-based obedience, I'm sorry, will always make it difficult to endure pain and suffering. Because we're going to think that God is just paying us back for something that we've done. Something, some sin in our life, he's just, he's just getting us back. I think his assessment of fear is, as being our motivator is, is pretty right. And I hope this doesn't describe you. If it does, if you're, if you're one of those people that serves God and does certain things because, because of some kind of unhealthy fear of God, and we should fear God. We, sh- we should respect and revere and be in awe of who God is. And that's not the kind of fear we're talking about. Here we're talking about some kind of fear of doing something just wrong and, and God's going to strike us dead right there for that. That's not really, that's not obedience. My challenge for you today is if that's, if that's describes you, that you see God's grace and mercy afresh today, that you would trust God's word today and know that you deserve wrath, that God has shown his love, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You can go on and read the rest of that passage. I hope you know the rest of that passage. But I just want you to see the the truth here, what he's talking about, that you are dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You deserved wrath like the rest of mankind. And Chris talks about this a lot, the, the, one of the greatest buts in the Bible in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive with Christ. Paul is urging his brothers in Rome, as well as you and I, to consider our motivation for obedience. Right, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And the next part is what, is what this looks like, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And, man, there's a lot here. Paul says the first thing is to present our bodies. Right, This idea of presenting um, is, is talking about how a person might give an offering. Right, In fact, your translation may use the word offer, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. We offer ourselves to God. We offer our entire being. In fact, Jesus tells us that the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. Right? That's the greatest command, to give every part of you, to love God with everything that you are. And this whole talk about the body would have shocked these readers in Rome. 
they would have been familiar with teachings of old philosophers like Plato, right? Plato with a T, not Plato. Y'all know the difference, right? Okay, not a lot of difference, but some. But Plato said that the body was a tomb in which the human spirit was imprisoned and longed to escape. That was a lot of these old, these philosophers thought that, that this body was a, was a tomb, like that it was worthless, that there was no, no benefit, nothing like that to it. And in a lot of ways, you know, the, I don't want to say that he's right, but we do have this flesh that we wrestle against, right? That we, we struggle in our sin, we struggle in our flesh, but these bodies, one of these days, are going to be raised glorious. But Paul's language, I think, is intentional. Our worship is not simply some kind of mystical experience, right? But our worship involves our entire being. It involves our entire being because it involves our obedience, right? It's not just our voices. When we, we stand here, we just stood and sang several songs and had this time that most people were, well, I worshiped. Well, our worship doesn't end when the band comes off the stage, right? Our worship continues as we hear the word of God. Our worship continues as we leave these doors and we serve and we obey and we, we preach the gospel and we, we love others as ourselves. That's what this looks like. That's what being living sacrifice, when he talks about offering your body, we're not just told to offer our voices to God or offer your money to God. We're told to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. We die daily to ourselves, right? This, this idea of being a living sacrifice good Jewish worshiper back then would have gone to the temple in Jerusalem, right, and they would have taken their sacrifices. They would have taken their, their goats or their rams or their bulls or their pigeons or whatever they could afford so that the priest could put these animals on an altar and slay it, right, kill it, and offer, sprinkle its blood on the altar, and that blood would be offered to God as a sacrifice. This animal would be killed. This blood would have been poured out on the altar as a payment to God for sin. This would have been their offering, their sin offering. And we don't go to the temple any longer. We don't have to go to the temple any longer. And you know why, right? Because we had one who poured out his blood as a sin offering for us. Jesus did this on the cross, right? His blood was poured out as a payment to God for sin. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 9, starting in verse 11. He says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You get what he's saying there? He's saying that if, if Jesus could have taken a, a, a bull or a goat into the inner place and offered it and, and offered his, that animal's blood, he could have done that. But it didn't work, right? It was, it was something temporary that was pointing forward to this ultimate sacrifice that Jesus paid himself. Jesus made it possible for us to have right fellowship with God. Not the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of, of any other animal. Jesus died. His blood was poured out. This means that we don't sacrifice animals anymore because the sacrifice has been made for us. This sacrifice was a big deal in the Old Testament. But even in the Old Testament, God was clear that he was more concerned about a person's heart. Right? He tells the story, you guys might be familiar with the Old Testament, the story of Samuel the prophet. 
when he is told by God to go to Bethlehem and find one of Jesse's sons to be King Saul's replacement. You guys remember King Saul was the first king of Israel, didn't really listen to God, and, and God said, I've removed my hand from him. And so he tells the prophet Samuel to go and, and he can consecrate Jesse and his sons, and one of them would be the replacement. One of them would be anointed king. And if you remember in the story that Jesse gets his sons and he gathers them up and he lines them up oldest to youngest, almost. He lines them up and the first one he comes to is, is the oldest brother of Jesse, oldest brother of David, oldest son of Jesse, Eliab, who from all looks of things would have been the most logical perspective, right? Big, strong, handsome guy. And Samuel says, surely this is the Lord's anointed. And you know what God says? Nope. Nope. He says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. And listen to this. He says, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Yeah, and you know how the rest of that story goes, right? All the rest of these guys are lined up from Eliab all the way down. And Samuel is told by God, nope, 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 nope. And he gets to the end and he says, wait a minute, what, what's going on? Don't you have more sons? And like, oh, well, yeah, there's David. You know, young little David, he's out with the sheep. And Samuel says, go get him. We're not, gonna, we're not going anywhere until David gets back here. And so David comes back. David comes back. And when he came, the Lord says to Samuel, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And we know this was not about mere outward appearance. This was about a young man after God's heart. This was about little David, the shepherd boy, who made his mistakes as in his life. But how was he referred to in Scripture? He's always talked about as a man after God's heart. It's not about outward appearance. This, and this is what it means to be a living sacrifice. It means that we are seeking God's heart. A living sacrifice means that, that everything about us is seeking everything about him. that we're giving all of ourselves to him and allowing him, trusting him to guide our steps. We sang about that earlier too, right? To love you from the inside out. We're called to be a living sacrifice. That means that we are completely committed and we're not holding anything back from him. We live day by day in fellowship with him. Being a living sacrifice means more than just showing up here on Sunday morning and sitting through a service. Right? It means when you leave these doors, it's, you're obeying. You're worshiping daily. With through your obedience, through your service, through your love of others. Jesus tells us that if we want to follow him, we are to deny ourselves, pick up our cross daily, and follow him. We need to get this, church, that being a Christian is more than just coming to church. It's about being the church. It's about being what Christ has called us to be. We're wrong to think that we can, wrong if we think we can come to Christ in repentance and faith and not be changed by him. Right, listen to what John writes in 1 John chapter 2. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. 
By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You hear all the times he's talking there about obeying the commandments? This is not talking about some kind of legalism either. He's not talking about working to achieve salvation. He's talking about people here that already believe, right? If we believe we've been saved, we know that we've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, then we are called to put to death the deeds of the body. Remember that from chapter 8 in Romans? We're called to walk as Jesus walked. We're called to be a living sacrifice. Now, when we talk about being a living sacrifice, we should have some kind of picture in our minds of, of this putting to death the deeds of the body, right? Like, like we talked about in Romans 8. We're to give everything to God, every part of ourselves. If we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, the next phrase tells us what it looks like. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Holiness is being set apart, right? We are renouncing sin. We're fighting sin. We're waging war against the sin in our life. Holiness happens when we allow the gospel to infuse and transform us, right? Totally shifts our priorities from selfishness to selflessness. And what happens when we do this is we please our creator, right? Our desire is to obey God, not so that we can put, pat ourselves on the back, but so that we can express deep gratitude for God, to God for the mercy and grace that he's shown us, right? And the next phrase, this last phrase in, in verse 1 is really interesting, right? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. There are several translations here. Your translation may say that differently for the word spiritual especially here. Some translations use the word um, act, spiritual act of worship. Um, some, some talk about your reasonable worship. But the word used in the original Greek is logikos, which I'm not a Greek scholar by any means, but I think this is really interesting because the, the word literally means um, the reasoning faculty, reasonable, rational, right? So to understand what Paul is talking about here, he's saying that in light of God's mercy, in light of the truth of, of the glorious gospel that we trust, the only right, the only reasonable, the only logical response is to offer our entire selves to God. That's what he's saying. Our spiritual act of worship, our, our reasonable worship, our logical worship is to be this living sacrifice because of the mercy of God. Do you get that? That, that it's logical, that it, the only thing that makes sense, the only thing that makes sense in light of God's mercy is that we give ourselves entirely to him. If we rightly understand God's mercy in our life, if we rightly understand what, what the gospel is about, what God's grace is all about, then clear thinking leads us, clear thinking is that, that we will live for him. Does that make sense? Anything, anything else but giving your entire life to God is illogical in Paul's mind, right? Tim Keller says, once you have a, view, a good view of God's mercy, anything less than a total, complete sacrifice of yourself to God is completely irrational. If you give yourself partially or half-heartedly, you are simply not thinking. You are not looking at what Jesus did. If what he did does not move you or break ice over your soul, you must ask yourself if you have ever understood the gospel. That's it, right? That's tough. But he's saying if the gospel doesn't move you, if the gospel does not move you, and I don't mean you running around being silly and crazy. I'm talking about if, if something doesn't stir inside you, then you need to look at your heart. So there's a lot in verse 1. Probably could have done with just doing verse 1 today. But basically Paul says this. We are to give ourselves completely to God because he has been so merciful to us. The only thing that makes sense is that we would love him completely and fully. Make sense so far? 
All right, let's look at verse 2 quickly here. He says, and Paul says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? It's a negative command and then a positive command. Right? Let's look at the negative one first. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Right? Do not get, be conformed to this world. This is the opposite of holiness. Right? If you look at this world, it's the opposite of holiness. Right? The world is corrupt. The world is being corrupted more and more every day. I mean, do you watch the news? Anybody given up on the news yet because it's so <laughs> depressing? I mean, I, I've contemplated it, you know. Um, but we see this. We see, we see the pattern of this world, right? Because we know, we know the way that it is is because Satan is called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4, right? Little g, not, not big g, not on par with God. But he's the prince of the power of the air. He talks about in, in Ephesians 2. Why would we expect anything different? Right? God has expected his people to be different from the world all throughout Scripture. Right? Even back in Leviticus 18, Paul says this, or I mean, I'm sorry, God says this uh, through Moses. He says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you live, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Right, sometimes we have difficulty knowing whether or not we are conforming to this world because there, there are good things in this world. Right? I, I don't think we are to shut ourselves completely out of the world and be some kind of monk, right? like living off away from everything and completely separating ourselves from that. No, we're called to be in the world, right? but not of the world. Jesus says this in John 17. He says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Right? In it, but not of it. You know, I, I heard a great illustration a long time ago of a thermostat, the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer. You guys know the difference between the two? Of course you do, right? You're smart. But a thermometer is something that used to, to, to gauge the environment around it, right? Like if we, if we have a thermo thermometer in the room, I don't even know where it is. Wherever. Anyway, it would tell us the temperature of the room, right? The thermometer. It would tell us what the environment is like. But if you went to the thermostat part of that and you adjusted it, it would change everything about its environment, right? The thermostat would control the environment. The thermometer just, just kind of reads what's there. Right? I, I think the I think this is a good parallel because we're one of these two things in our walk with the Lord. Right? We're either being influenced by the things around us like a thermometer, right? We're allowing the world, we're being conformed to the world, right? Or we're being transformed, right? We are we are transforming others around us by preaching the gospel like a thermostat. Right? Are we are we changing our environment for the sake of God's kingdom? Or are we just kind of fitting in? We must not be afraid of being different from the world. So the second part of the command, being transformed by the renewing of your mind, to be, be transformed, right, um, do not be conformed. These are talking about attitudes and, and actions that are consistently happening, right? Keeping on refusing to conform to the world. Keep on being transformed according to the will of God, right? Being renewed in our minds is more than just thinking true thoughts or, or thinking positive, right? It means that our minds are being influenced and controlled by something completely different. In this case, we give up control of our own, on our own, and we allow the Holy Spirit to have charge. Right? So, 
the result of, of, of us allowing the Holy Spirit to change us, allowing the will of God to change us is this, that by testing we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the conflict, right, the tension of life. We want to know what God's will is, but unless we're being transformed by the word of God and the Holy Spirit, we can't know, right, we won't know. And I think sometimes we're waiting for some kind of big lights in the sky to reveal God's will for our lives. And I think we complicate that, right? I'm just seeking God's will, sitting here seeking God's will. When, when God's will is just that we live daily for him. That's God's will for our lives, that we serve him, that we love others, right? It's, it, we complicate it. God's will is that we live in obedience, that we offer ourselves as living sacrifice, that we die daily to ourselves, that we give every part of ourselves to him. And we do this all in response to his mercy. So what does this commitment look like? It, it, it looks like us presenting ourselves to him as a living sacrifice. To be a living sacrifice means we stop conforming to the world. We be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And when we do this, we know, we can know the will of God for our lives. Nothing else makes sense. Right? Nothing else makes sense in all this. If you're in Christ and you're not offering your sacrifice, it's illogical. When we think about God's mercy and grace and love and patience, our only logical response in worship is worship that leads to obedience. So, a few points of application for us. Number one, God's mercy should motivate us to joy. If you're here today, you are motivated by anything else, I want you to see that God, I want you to see today God's mercy and his grace fresh and living. And as you do, as we develop this right theology, it should lead us to worship, because worship leads us to obedience. We should joyfully give ourselves to him. So God's mercy motiv motivates us to holy living. The second one, question, are you conforming to the pattern of this world? I want you to evaluate yourself honestly. I want you to think about your priorities. If we are, I want us to repent and go. Stop conforming to the pattern of the world. That's the command. Do not be conformed. to the next point, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, right? Are we in the word? And, and, and I mean on your own, right? Not just here, not just once or twice a week when you're sitting in this room or in your Sunday school room, but are you in it daily? Do you crave it like you might crave chocolate or something, right? Do you want it? Have you ever had, just had that moment where you're just like, man, I just, I just need, to, need the word. I just need it. I want us to hopefully develop that. Are we submitting ourselves to the Holy Spirit's leadership? If we're not, why not? We want to know what God's will is. That's a good place to start, right? In the word and listening to the Holy Spirit. The last point today is, is for those people here that might not be in Christ at all. If you've never experienced God's mercy, if you've never experienced his grace, you need to know today that there's hope for you. There's hope for you to know about his mercy. There's hope for you today to know about grace and peace with God because of what Jesus did for you, because you're a sinner and you deserve God's wrath and mercy. God is holy and just and righteous and has to punish sin. But he's also loving. He loves you so much that he sent his own son to die in your place, to die for you, to take on the wrath and punishment that you and I deserve. And he did that on the cross. He was buried and three days later rose from the grave. If you repent and trust him today, repent and put your entire weight, put your, give your entire self to him, you can be saved. 
Jesus said it. And you will know what it means to experience his mercy and have his grace. You can give yourself to the Lord this afternoon. Let's stand together and pray. God, we're thankful for today. We're thankful, God, that you've allowed us to be in your word this morning. And we want today to respond rightly to your mercy. God, I I pray that my life would be a living sacrifice. It would be holy and pleasing to you. I pray today, Lord, for those that might be here that, that don't know anything about your mercy, don't know anything about your grace. I pray, God, today that you would break their heart. God, that you would lead them to repent and trust in you today. I pray for those that are here today that are struggling, suffering. I pray that you would encourage them. I pray, God, that you would work now in these few moments. God, that our eyes and our hearts would be attuned to you and we'd respond rightly. Lord, thank you for saving us. We ask this in Jesus' name.